Welcome to Decades From Home, a podcast about Germany. I'm Nick Houghton of 40percentgerman.com and as always I'm joined by co-host Dilly Algema to discuss the weird and wonderful side of living in Germany. How are you doing Dilly? Hi Nick, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. Yeah, it's been a busy week. It's been a busy mm-hmm. week. Lots of stuff going on. But um, to kick off the show, as is tradition, you got a question for me, Dilly. So Nick, tell us, how was your daughter's birthday? Did you get a goodie bag and what was in it? Tell me everything. <laughs> yeah, it was my daughter's birthday on Friday. Three years old. And we Aww. didn't quite have, the, yeah, I know it's very sweet. It's very, very sweet. We didn't quite have a big kid's birthday party because she's only just got into the kindergarten and she won't start till September. So there was no goodie bags, sadly. Um, although I was thinking about it, I was like, what makes a good goodie bag? Yeah. Definitely uh, some weird plastic toys. We've got plenty of those anyway. So mm-hmm. like some kind of uh, big lump of cake bag of haribo mm. that kind of jazz but we did i did bake a cake i was luckily nice. had the assistance of my uh of my mother who has been here since thursday night so she helped oh nice she helped me bake a cake first time we've ever had a chance to do that it's really nice it's really nice sort of doing kind of family things that are usually conducted in the uk but instead in germany so that's okay. quite nice do you mean like bonding things like between you and your mom yeah. did you bond with her over cake no not i mean not really not me and her more more my daughter and my mum uh-huh. kind of getting to spend time together and do stuff that she's my mum's done with my nieces and nephews who are a bit older mm. and now get to do with my daughter and uh, eventually, I guess my son. But um, yeah, it, well, it was just really nice. It was really, really fun to do what what was really just like a really simple thing. Just make a very simple cake. Mm. I, I came up with a new trick because I'm always concerned about my parents-in-law and my wife's kind of their perception of cakes in Britain is there's just mm. too much sugar. Oh. So I did this really really basic thing and it worked so well I had a bbc mm. recipe for a birthday cake basic victoria sponge mm. and i just took half the sugar out of the recipe <laughs> and then just made it and they were like this is great uh, everyone Aww. ate that piece of the cake everyone enjoyed it so yeah, that's the trick i think is to just remove half the sugar from any british recipe and you'll probably get something that your german family-in-laws will enjoy. Glad it works, though, that you can remove half the sugar and still have the cake rice and stuff. I think if it was a yeast cake, you might have to be a bit more concerned, but this was mm. baking powder. I mean, it is a real, it's a real sort of challenge, baking cakes for, oh, I mean, I don't want to generalize, but I do get the feeling that your average German has quite strong opinions about cake. Mm. Uh, at least that's been my experience. Mm-hmm. So baking a cake for a, a group of Germans is always a bit of a double-edged sword yeah i mean it's nice to do it's always (laughs) lovely to do that kind of stuff i love sharing food culture is one of the greatest and most shareable bits of culture Mm. then you've also got to contend with the honest feedback (laughs) oh i've ate cakes before and people have gone it's very sweet and i'm like in your face like that yeah 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 totally totally how did your mom get on with her son's in-laws they get on quite well. They've known each other quite well. It's it's always a bit of a dance. Mm. Their sense of politeness and hospitality mm. are exactly the same. Mm-hmm. So it, it's always kind of nice because you just see two very distinct versions of very German German politeness and 
mm. and British politeness. Now I know some listeners might say there are, there is no such thing as chirping politeness, but I can mm-hmm. assure you that there really, really is. It's really nice to have those moments. I, I'm increasingly becoming a massive, what I would have probably termed five years ago, soppy twat mm. when it comes to sort of parenting. Like all these moments where my daughter and her, and her cousins can get together, everyone's kind of being quite, not cynical, Simon's but not kind mumbling of... mumbling under his breath. Then, yeah, I know, he's probably, <laughs> he probably thinks I've been a bit ridiculous. But I'll be in the corner going, this is great, guys. It's just great everyone can get together and have... They're look at the kids hands. and they're all playing together. And like someone will say, oh, should we do this? And I'll be like, yeah, we should do it more often. It's just great. It's in like, and like everyone's just like, Nick, are you all right? Uh, and I'm sort of... I've kind of been brainwashed by... Is it the sugar in the cake, Nick? No, nah, it's just like, I love it. I, can't, I really do. I, I think it's... You see you see all these little things where you're like, oh, they're going to remember that happening or they're going to... This is going to be a formative experience. Not that you're pushing it. You just see kind of engagement, like Christmases mm. and birthdays and these events where everyone gets together. You're like, oh, they're going to have like these some of these sort of very f- cool memories and it's nice and I appreciate it. But um, I think... I've always been the, the the sort of soppy one out of the family, so I'm just playing that role. All these sort of cold, cold, calculating Germans, and then it's me just going, "Oh, this is beautiful, guys! No, I'm not crying. You're crying." Um, yeah, it's just so. the onions in the room. <laughs> it's just the onions in the cake. Wait, um, yeah. So it's just good. It's good. But you, I mean, do you? Uh, is the gift bag, the loot bag, the kind of the thing they get? At parties is that a big thing back in Sri Lanka because it was a massive thing in Britain but I don't yeah. know that I've seen it so much here like mm. they get Haribo and stuff but I haven't seen like a little plastic tootin with like a party poppers or something mm. like that or like one of them party horns or mm. something no in Sri Lanka it's a thing like it's how they um, establish your social status how big ah, what's included right. in it What's the expensive stuff in it? Really interesting. Yeah, it's an industry on its own. But it's like at the Oscars when they give away all the gift bags. It's kind of like that in Sri Lanka, is mm-hmm. it? Is it sort of like, ah, you've given me two uh, vouchers for the spa. How lovely. <laughs> children's um, spa. One is for a children's massage, Nick. Because <laughs> like in Britain, it was it's dog shit, man. They're not putting anything good in it. It's like stuff that you think is good when you're seven or eight years old, which is like, let's be frank, We've all been seven or eight years old. The stuff we liked then was canny, cheap and shit. So, like, it's good, but let's not pretend that it was, like, complex kind of yeah. culture or anything like that, you know? Yeah. Like, no one was putting copies of Proust in my <laughs> gift bags <laughs> after playing <laughs> Pass the Parcel and eating my body weight in sausage rolls. Well, did you have sausage rolls? <laughs> not this time, no. Now, as soon as I said it, I was like, damn, I should have made some yeah, sausage, sausage rolls. Next time, next time, next time, yeah. I'll do it. So, was there like food? Did you have like finger food? Nah, it was nothing like that. We just had dinner because um, uh-huh. there's been like a corona panic. Yeah. So, people cancelled last minute and we just had to sort of accept it. I did learn something very important about myself that mm. I don't, I'm not a very violent man. I'm quite an easygoing kind of guy. But when we're told my daughter that the party wasn't going to be have as many people as we had hoped for mm. a little bottom lip started trembling and in that moment oh. i was like 
Oh, yeah, I would definitely murder every single person who's cancelled if that would just make my daughter happy. So what I've learned is I'm not a homicidal maniac unless in some way it upsets my daughter and that little Mm -hmm. bottom lip goes. And then I'm a raging barbarian who will split your head in half with a a hand axe. Absolutely no problem whatsoever. That's you. Yeah, that's it. That's what I've learned. I didn't realize that about myself. Important milestone in self-perception. Yeah, I know. But there was a moment where there was just a flash of like red. And I was like, I have to kill all these people who have made my daughter sad. Life miserable. I'm going to be fucking horrendous when she starts dating. Honestly, I'm going to be the worst. (laughs) It's just not going to go well. Uh, We have to be locked in the basement or something. You probably like throw rocks at their windows to say did you break up with my daughter get out here exactly <laughs> you teeming little piece of shit i'm just standing in the rain across the street as like a dark silhouette no say mom he's across the street again <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah ah. yeah i can see myself going vigilante pretty fast so not a homicidal maniac. Okay, got that. I know I'm homicidal maniac, but like you know, <laughs> you know, kind of also trying to do it out for the for out of the goodness of my heart. <laughs> I'm just one of those homicidal maniacs with a heart of gold. <laughs> John Wicks, but for kids. I'm curious, Dilly. Do you consider yourself to be an expat? Um. The term is kind of loaded, so I, I, I always call myself an immigrant because that is what I feel I am. So in Sri Lanka, which is a wonderful, beautiful island, you have a bunch of expats that live in the beautiful south of the country, close to the beach. And like, you know, there is completely removed from everyday life. They have it where they've retired with their pensions in dollars and euros, uh, living in a country with rupees. They have access to privilege and luxury that people in Sri Lanka don't have access to. And even when we say there are expats in Germany, it sounds like a bunch of people who are immigrants, but also better off than the the average immigrant, whoever that may be. And I don't think I identify myself with that kind of privilege and luxury. I wouldn't be living here working if that was the case. So you have like a, a quite a clear definition of what an expat is. And it's kind of, mm-hmm. it's very similar to mine uh, in that my understanding, uh, and, and I tr- feel like I, I walk a very fine line because I, I do feel like in a, a former version of myself, I would have described myself as an expat. Mm-hmm. I don't now. But this idea of someone who is who lives in the country but isn't necessarily interested in engaging in the culture mm-hmm very aloof particularly fully aloof perhaps but also they want to make friends they're happy to Mm. make friends with anyone but they probably Mm. don't make a lot of friends without their sort of language barriers Mm -hmm. they sort of if you speak english and you are in close proximity that's probably going to be enough usually and Mm. they're not going out and seeking a different culture as readily as they are perhaps seeking comfort Mm. and that would be my understanding too it's a funny one like because I do think it's quite a racialized term mm-hmm. and, and it's something that we've discussed on the podcast before. When people call me an expat, which people have done, mm. I bristle quite a lot. Mm. It kind of feels like saying, we've, and again, something we've talked about before, like you're one of the good ones, you're a good migrant, expat, yeah. good migrant. Yeah. That's kind of what it's shorthand I've been for. There. Yeah. And the reason I bring it up is 
mainly because of the Internation's Expat Insider survey, which was released just last week. Mm. And they do this every year, these surveys, mm. and they have been doing them since 2014. Mm. And the aim mostly is to identify the best destinations for expats to live in. Okay. Yeah, and the, the metrics that they use are quite interesting. Mm. They use things like quality of life, ease of settling in, working mm. abroad, those kinds of things to measure. And I think it fluctuates between, I think the first one had more countries, but this year it was 52 countries in total mm. and 12,000 respondents from 177 different nationalities. Mm. And it's about as comprehensive as any study on the expat experience is going to be. Mm. And there was some like really interesting results. How did Germany do? Well, not great. Germany ranked 42nd out of 52 countries overall yeah. and sits dead yeah. last in the expat essentials index. The respondents generally were saying that housing, bureaucracy, digital mm. life, and of course, the language were all a problem and, mm -hmm. and definitely a hurdle to living in Germany. I think I came across an article um, as well that kind of summarized what people or expats, in their words, mm -hmm. had said about Germany. Mm -hmm. It was a very short article, but for a short article, it had like quoted three expats and they were from yeah. the UK, the US uh -huh. and the fancy country from which we all take immigrants very freely, Poland, nothing against the Polish people. So I was like, oh, okay, so you have white people telling you exactly <laughs> right, yes. what they like about living in Germany. Sure, sure. Oh. We haven't heard that enough, so, okay. It's not a wide range, is it? It's like the neighbours. What do the neighbours say about Germany? <laughs> it's like, very, you know, okay, check. We have the UK guy, the US, Poland. What more do we want? Did you notice any interesting statistics from that article? Was there any kind of, or comments maybe from the respondents that you thought, ah, that's something that I was, I've maybe agree with, or that's something I really disagree with? Actually, there were things that did stand out to me. So like one expert from the US had stressed, and I, and I stress, stress, I feel really safe here. I'm guessing this is a man. <laughs> Possibly. I feel safe. <laughs> if you feel safe anywhere, you must be a man, a straight man. Um, <laughs> there's little to no violence. Tell me, sweetheart, where there is little to no violence in Germany, I would move there. You've kind of identified part of the issue that i have with the study mm. which mm. is they don't give you a lot of detail about the respondents and certainly mm. i don't think they give you the gender of the respondents mm. but it tells you their responses to things tell you so much about what kind of expats they are because mm. that's the kind of thing i would have said a few years ago because I spend a lot of time walking around the streets and going to bars and clubs mm. and no one has punched me in the face. Mm. And therefore, inherently, street violence is far less of a problem mm. in Bayern, if not Germany as a whole, in comparison to where I lived in the UK. Mm. And so therefore, in my perception, it was safe. But street violence is only one type of sort of violence, right? There is a lot of different types. Yeah, and therefore, yeah. it, it just says to me, oh, I remember thinking like that. And mm. I remember probably saying something like that. But safety is very much a subjective concept. Yeah. Um, I was curating the I Am Germany Twitter account last week. 
and it came up yeah, in yeah, a conversation course. where we were talking about trains and how um, I mean you may as well drive somewhere because trains aren't cheap anymore. Then someone very rightly pointed out that is you know it's not just the price, but uh, some people actually prefer private transport because the more eco-friendly, environmentally friendly option of public transport is not everyone's option, and that is very true. Even in my, I mean, my town. I'm sorry to say, my dodgy town that I live in. I never walk from the train station in the night. I don't go anywhere that will have me getting back after sunset. And I do that for my own safety. I have my phone with me in my pocket when I walk. And um, I don't know whether this means cortisol. Yeah, these are things that you always have in the back of your head. I, I wonder where these people are based. I wonder what their lives are like to be stressing that Germany is a very safe place to be in. I think it bears it out in the statistics. I mean, and only this is, again, it's statistics, right? What's mm. that Mark Twain quote about there's lies, damn lies, and then there's statistics, right? Mm. So we know they can be twisted depending on how you want to view them. But statistically, Germany is a very safe country. Mm. And Bavaria and Baden-Württemberg are the safest parts of the country. Mm. Interestingly enough, it also corresponds with wealth distribution as well so the, mm. the richest places also happen to be the safest places funnily enough weird that mm. right but yeah mm. i think the the things that going along that theme of like what does the data kind of tell us in mm. the subtext the things that they had to say were were generally quite negative as i mentioned about mm. about germany and the things that they said were 56 percent of people rated mm. Um, the housing in Germany negatively. Mm. And that's twice the, apparently the global average that they found of 27% reporting kind of negative feelings about housing in various parts of the world. Mm. And they had a hard time with language, uh, mm. which I felt that statistic stood out for me mm. because it is such, it's the epitome of the expat. I'm no one to judge anyone else's German, but. Mm. I try my best. I try and learn words. I try and understand the grammar. I don't always achieve high communication mm. as much as I would want to, but I, I push and I push and I push and I get a little bit better and a bit better and a bit better. But the expats I, I know and the expats that I, people I would call expats or people who call, would call themselves expats mm. often don't have great language skills. And they said 46% were unhappy with the level of language difficulty yeah. and, and this is against the 32 percent global average of, of discontent with generally languages and yeah. i was like well that's quite high isn't it like mm. you move to a country assume you're gonna have to speak the language and people will go oh well my job oh it was my job and they, oh, i just came over i didn't know i was going to come over and i was like, well i didn't really know i was going to come over to germany until about two months before i did it like i still managed to learn danke and bitter and like mm. Can I kind of beer and survive tequila harbin bitter? You know, the important sentences. You see, these are the things that you sneak into your sneak into your bits and then Nuan pu hi Nuan, shout out to you. And then Nuan pulls <laughs> me up for not like taking you to task. You and your tequila. What 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 what, what, what uh, yeah, what what's wrong with tequila? Nothing wrong with tequila. Are you getting complaints on Twitter about me? These are like the first things you wanted to say in German. Are you what? How can I have some tequila? Why is, is that problematic? Is that a problematic It's not, sentence? but I, then I wonder about the context and I can't concentrate anymore. Where do you go that you have to ask for tequila? Bars. <laughs> oh, God, <laughs> Nick. Okay. When I moved, I was 28. I was still going to bars. I still had a life, God damn it. Uh, 
Now so, it's just once a year. Now it's just once a year on St. Patrick's Day. Yeah, that's oh, why it's I'm so Simon bloody happy. Oh, it's playing the tiny violin. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's my aim to get him to do it at least once an episode. <laughs> so the, the language the language thing was very telling. And the complaint yeah. about language and the high complaint about language seemed quite sort of indicative of the expat experience. Mm-hmm. I agree with you there. So if you have like a bunch of people who don't speak as well in German. There are people there in that group who have had so much adversarial reactions to them that they just don't have have the heart to learn German. They they struggle with it. And then there are also people to, who just, you know, who get by, who just don't need it because they're just above everything. And I think that's where the expats are. You you don't have the the grueling everyday German life to live you also don't have the life of other immigrants to live just so well off and your language just doesn't even play a part i don't know maybe there there is something like that too i know this to be the truth there was something that when i wrote about this for the blog there was a whole section i deleted about Mm. the image that the word expat conjures in my head takes Mm. us back to like the first weeks of living in germany and i went to a tafel teaching english to foreign learners course Mm. weekend course in munich Mm. And I remember going and I was bright eyed, bushy tailed, dead excited about this new opportunity. I was getting training. I was in Munich. I was staying in this hotel. It was all kind of like exciting. And we went to this training in an empty function room. And I mean, it was all right. The person doing the training was used to training kids and I was going to mm. teach adults. A lot of us were going to teach adults. So the training was a bit... It wasn't great, but we got the basics. Hmm. But there was a person, there was there was people from all over the world in there. There was people from Spain. There was a person from Peru. There hmm. was, I think, a couple of people from Poland. Like hmm. a lot of different people. And they were all obviously chatting away in English. And I remember this woman came in and she was British. And she like as soon as she found out that I was British, she hmm. sort of gravitated towards us hmm. and like sat down next to us. And like started peppering us with questions. But every question was just so negative. Don't you hate this about Germany? Oh, I hate this. I don't like this. Oh, And the thing that sticks in my mind when I think about expats is she had this thing about how expensive Bongella was and how Bongella was eight euros or something in the apotheca and how what was it bonjello yeah it's like a kind of salve that you use on especially on in your mouth if you got some kind of cut in your mouth you would mm. put bonjello on it and it kind mm. of cleans the cut and she was just talking about bonjello for about 10 minutes and i just i was too sort of new to just go would you just fuck off <laughs> which i wish i would do now if somebody did that i'd be like would you honestly would you just fuck off like i don't want to hear that like in my ear and I was just like, all oh, right, yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? And that's the image that conjures to somebody who's who doesn't really know. They were complaining about all these things. And then someone, I remember a Polish guy explained why the, there was this issue that she didn't mm. understand. And she was like, when it had been explained, everyone was like, all oh, right, that makes a lot of sense. Oh, that's interesting. That's, that's why they do it. And she was like, oh, well, it's just stupid anyway. That's my perception of someone who's very kind of privileged, has mm. this great opportunity and kind of wastes it by being quite negative. Mm. But I didn't put that in because I do feel like expats get a raw deal because ultimately there's a lot in this survey that we could sort of agree with, I think. There is issues, of course. Mm-hmm. There is issues. The methodology is a bit shaky. 
Mm. But what surprised me was it only took 50 surveys for a city to go into the list of like best expat cities. 50 mm. surveys isn't a lot to rank a city by. It's quite a small number. But the mm. big thing for me is kind of what you mentioned before when you broke down the different people who had been interviewed. Mm. And it seems very weighted towards British and American yeah. opinion. Yeah. And because the breakdown of the numbers of respondents isn't actually given, I yeah. can only assume it's because it's quite heavily weighted towards British and American opinion. Yeah. Especially if we're talking about Germany's ratings when it comes to like making friends and kind mm. of openness and stuff like that. Yeah. And this is obviously problematic. Well, yeah, British and Americans aren't great at understanding other countries particularly well. Mm. At least that's my experience. Mm. And I'd be more inclined to trust the results if there was lots of different nationalities. They say 177 different nationalities, but mm. if that's just one Iranian and 10,000 British people and Americans, then it doesn't really, <laughs> like it doesn't, mm. it's not a great cross-section of society. Yeah. And so like the fact it's called the expat survey, yeah. the fact it doesn't give these numbers, <laughs> the fact that the data is a little bit shaky, all are good reasons to ignore it but yeah th there is something to the de the detail right there is something to the detail i mean they point out housing's a problem they point out digitalization's a problem they point mm. out the bureaucracy's a problem these are all things that we know are problems they are but like the way they are problems are also different no from person to person i can't remember where i read this or maybe it was on twitter recently someone was in charge of a project and uh, you had like international scholars also coming in and then they had to send the wife with the scholars so that they would actually get the apartments that they applied for and that they would be treated well. And I mean, yeah, housing is a problem, but we don't always have the same problems. So maybe it's expensive. We are told that it's okay to spend one third of our salaries on uh, rent. That's a problem. Mm -hmm. But bureaucracy i mean how people are treated in the, uh, by the job center the unemployment bureau imagine that you are unemployed and uh, for whatever reason that's like strike one and then you go there mm -hmm. and you're an immigrant and that's kind of like strike two i mean think of all the stories that we read about people applying for visas at the ausländerbehörder mm. i mean not everyone walks in with the same kind of passport yeah, no, I think you're totally right. I think there is no nuance to these mm. responses. What I would say, though, is it's one of those things where, and part of me thought this, and Dilly, you can tell me I'm a prick for thinking it, but I did cross my mind that when white people complain about shit, things generally get fixed. Part of me was like, kind of mm. like, well, maybe, mm. okay. may maybe the people who go on television and complain about a lack of skilled workers, but then also on a dime will go, we don't want to reduce the time it takes to get a German citizenship, might see something like that and go, oh, oh, right, the expats have a problem. But you've kind of identified the larger issue is like, well, if they fix all the problems for expats, mm -hmm. they don't fix all the problems for every migrant, then mm. it's just you've created a two kind of lane system where, oh, you're an expat, sir. No problem, sir. Sit down, sir. Would you like a cup of tea, sir? And then they're like, oh, you're a migrant. Sit over there on the floor. Mm. And it will be two hours, you know? Like yeah. you wouldn't want a system that treats one above the other. Yeah. But I think a lot of people would dismiss this because expats do have it. And the perceptions of expats are that they do have it easy, you know, like they do have it easier than everyone else. Mm. But it's again, interesting that 
we've said it, Germans say it, the government has said it, the Board of Trade has said it, expats surveys are producing the same data about mm. the actual issues, which are over and over again, digitalization, overly bureaucratic, mm. and essentially a country that is perceived as unwelcoming, which I think is really damaging to Germany's reputation. Yeah. When I posted my article about the expat survey on Saturday, there was one person who was like, oh, I was going to move to Germany in mm. two months, oh dear. And I was like, well, experiences differ, you know, but over and again, these are the things that people point out. Yeah. And it seems insane that we keep shouting it and no one seems to really be yeah. doing anything to fix it. It's interesting that you pointed out. So we've had problems in the same department, but differing according to the person or the group. And then we have problems that certain people can speak about and get quick solutions then we have problems that won't get fixed because they are not faced by the majority. I mean, I mean that's pretty much society in general, um, not just immigrant problems. Well, you know, yeah, exactly. It's, it's like a societal issue as a whole. Like mm. Everyone's screaming the same same issues and they're not yeah. doing anything about it. Alternatively, though, not to be a total bummer about Germany because it's a country mm. that we both love in different yeah. ways, I think, but we both love. Um, oh, the... Did you have to qualify <laughs> Now people will think that there's something to hide. You don't qualify things. Don't this teach you anything in spy school? Well, well, I, I like I like the beer. Do you like the beer? Do we have to go through all the things we like? Do we have to go through I the checklist like to beer. compare notes? <laughs> there you go. See, this is where we differ straight away. We differ straight away <laughs> in our love of the things that we love. Now, obviously, there is a lot of things to love and a lot of things to be annoyed about. Mm -hmm. To sort of finish on a positive, what is interesting is where Germany scores high is things like, as you mentioned, safety. Although it might, it, we might have to qualify that a little so bit. Safety for everyone. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah okay. But but still, it's it's job security. Um, it, it scores high on economic strength. And these are three quite hard culture points that seem so unimportant when compared to leisure time. And that just said so much to me about this kind of survey, which was actually Germany's got some very hard, solid, important things down well. They just maybe don't have enough cinemas. Please, sir, may I ask a question? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. <laughs> you at the back there. You. I find this really surprising. So I am inclined to think that when they say expats, these expats are in no way doing their PhDs or studying at universities because no one working at a German university will have job security. Not even German people have job security in a university. So who the fuck are these expats? I mean, where do they find them? They didn't ask any of us, so I assume we're not on the mailing list, right? No. But um, the, uh, the breakdown of the sort of jobs of respondents was, was quite interesting. I think it was quite high for the number of people who were leaving in order to set up a new life in a country. 30% of people who responded mm. to the survey said that they wanted to live in the country long term mm. and weren't intending on sort of leaving. Mm. And actually, so there was a big chunk of respondents who were thinking about living here long term. So mm. it wasn't just all dalliance. But again, it's so vague. And I think that's the, the biggest problem with it. It's so vague about who they're, they're speaking to, the gender of the person that's talking. Like mm. the fact that, the, just the very fact that they don't give that information tells me that there's probably something in the data that says this isn't very representative of people's experience. But mm. then it also sums up 
the ultimate problem with the word expat, doesn't it? Not mm. very representative is really the sub-definition for that word. Yeah, I, I, I would say so. Okay, Nick, do you want to hear what's new? Go on then. The climate referendum in Berlin has failed. Berlin, something fails again in Berlin. <laughs> it's always bloody Berlin. <laughs> Letting the side down. <laughs> tell us about what's going on. Go on. Referendums, you tell me, are they ever a good idea, Nick? Do you know something or two about referendums? Um, I'll, I'll be a bit honest with you. My last experience with a referendum in Britain ended after sort of six years of psychodrama. So, yeah, I'm skeptical. <laughs> skeptical of referendums, I think. Okay. You know, the British might be skeptical, Nicholas, but as I keep reminding you, Britain is in the centre of the world. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why are you using my Sunday name? Like, you sound like either my wife or my mother. I'm slight concerned I might be in trouble. I didn't really say anything about Britain particularly, so I feel, I feel like you're putting words in my mouth just a little bit. Just your wife and your mother, I think I'm in good company. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Lovely ladies, from what I hear. Yeah, I suppose you are. I can't, I can't argue with that. I can't argue with that. You are an excellent company. Hi, mum. Hi, darling. <laughs> so, as I was saying, Nicholas, not everyone is skeptical of the referendums or have been scarred by the decisions of amoral politicians. In fact, our fine capital of Berlin had its own referendum this week. So on Sunday, Berlin went to pause again. Uh, when I say again, I mean that it's something Berlin does from time to time. This was on the topic of making the city more climate neutral and making the deadline 2030 as opposed to 2045, and, uh, which was the previous plan. This would have been a pretty interesting one. It could actually have become binding on the Senate of Berlin. So they needed to reach a quorum, meaning they needed a specific number of voters in order for the result to achieve its goal. In this case, 607,518 votes. But as luck would have it, the climate campaigners were short of 170,000 votes when the polls closed. So what you're saying is you can have referendums that actually have rules to ensure that any decision that actually has the support of a clear majority of voters is implemented, right? That would be the case. So, like, who would run a referendum without any safeguards to protect democracy? That would be idiotic. You're damn right it would be idiotic. In fact, that would be the exact word. So, the vote isn't binding then in this case. Was, mm -hmm. was, there, was there even a winner? Was I mean, did they even release those statistics? Well, actually... Not really. Like the yes vote got like slightly more, like 50.9%, while the no vote received 48.7% of votes. I mean, it's pretty like neck to neck if you think about it. Mm -hmm. And the result yeah. was a major disappointment to the activists. Um, I mean, people worked pretty hard uh, to even actually have the referendum in the first place. I'm told that it took four months for the group uh, Klima Neustadt Berlin to like put together the signatures and so on in order to have a referendum in the first place. So, I mean, it's kind of sad. I mean, 50.9 yeah. versus 48.7. I mean, 
that's like half half and half right it's like a clear split it really is it's uh, it's so close to the brexit referendum it's troubling mm. i mean when we talked to aaron a couple of weeks ago my mm. feeling from the conversation we had about berlin was that and that's the perception as well isn't it that it's open-minded and very liberal mm. and it makes you wonder really why the vote seems to have failed yeah and like another thing that i was thinking when you were reading those stats is that like 48.7 percent is yeah. quite a surprisingly large number of votes for yeah. no and an argument about climate neutrality i know there was that vote in the election of february that swung towards center-right cdu but still you know I, I would have expected it to be slightly better than that yeah i was also thinking though like i mean if this sort of referendum for going climate neutral fails in berlin where else in germany is it supposed to work it's a good point you know it's a really good point i'm gonna say this because i'm british right like i think referendums <laughs> are a shit idea like i think they're a shit idea and i think especially in the modern era mm. referendums mm. unless they're tied to something larger mm. aren't necessarily going to get the attention that you need mm. and I think that's the case with the, with this one is like sitting it on its own. I felt as soon as they announced it, it wasn't going to go well. Why? Because it just seemed like election fatigue. Yeah, like you, yeah, you have, yeah, yeah. You have a True. massive buildup to an election and then yeah. you have another one. Yeah. And the climate supporters were complaining that they wanted to have the referendum at the same time as the election, but I think the court refused that option. Ah, okay. And... I mean, if the court's refusing it, the court's refusing it. I mean, to a certain extent, the activists hmm. are right. It probably would have had a better turnout. Yeah. But at the same time, it kind of muddies the water a bit. Hmm. And how many people are informed enough to make these decisions? Like what I learned from the... Everywhere's not Britain, as you said before. But, you know, like I suspect that Britain's representative of the political experience in a lot of countries. How informed were the British electorate before they went to the polls in 2016? Very poorly. Very they were poorly. not well yeah. informed like and i say that in my own experience i'm not saying yeah. i was more informed than others but the debate was shit yeah and we didn't actually debate what was happening until after we'd made the decision yeah and it was too late yeah and we started making strong arguments and doing the investigations yeah. and i'm like how many people understand what climate neutrality means and how many yeah. will yeah. actually can sort of describe it and see it as a mm. tangible thing not many i would imagine even in Berlin, as liberal as it is. That's really surprising to me. And and it's also kind of like shakes the foundations of your liberalness. Because, uh, I mean, seeing the vote split so. Part of the problem for the year's vote came down to the reality of actually making Berlin climate neutral. Experts suggested that seven years was maybe too short a time period. Uh, where, you know, I mean, you have to like try and move the city to like climate neutrality and working out the ins and outs of things. I mean, you only have seven years for it. And um, the cost was mm -hmm. then another issue because apparently the whole enterprise could have needed like and, um, 113 billion euros. And I mean, when you compare it to Berlin's annual budget, uh, which is like 100 and sorry, no 100, just 38 billion euros. I mean, yeah, it's a it's bit like, smaller, right? That's, yeah. <laughs> they could have asked Bavaria for a loan. Sure. Maybe Bayern's uh, minister president, Markus Söder, maybe he wasn't answering their calls or something. Maybe he was too busy hugging the trees. 
as as yeah. one should be doing. <laughs> so the, the the failure of the the voter turnout and this larger than expected no vote. This all seems like a pretty comprehensive defeat for the climate campaign is rather depressingly if not like a larger defeat across the country as you said berlin if it fails in berlin it's going to fail anywhere right i mean you might think that but like uh, okay so to like come out of the percentage thing the yes vote actually received 442,210 votes that's a lot it is i mean it is a lot but it's basically academic right it's not they're not it's not going to come into effect this yeah, maybe, but like it's a much larger number than say I don't know, four hundred and twenty-eight thousand two hundred and twenty-eight. Nick, that's a it's a very specific number that you're you're quoting there, Dilly. It does feel like that number is awfully familiar. Why do I know that number? You know it because you're an ardent follower of everything that happens to the CDU. <laughs> no guesses. No. 428,228, that was the exact number of votes the CDU had in the Berlin election in February. Ah! So. It's, it's, it's a conspiracy. So what you're saying is more people voted for the yes vote to make Berlin climate neutral than they did actually vote for the CDU in the election yeah. in February. Yeah. <laughs> That's quite good news. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's not all that bad. There's a silver lining. Look at the silver lining, yeah. Nick. It does feel like that's quite a hard hit, isn't it? It does say a lot about where Berlin's direction is. Mm. That even in a failed referendum, there's still more votes for the proposition than for the winning party. Mm. In there, yeah. I mean, it could also speak to the fact the failure of it. There was only two choices in the referendum. There was multiple choices when it came to the uh, the election in February. So yeah, yeah. yeah. If you happened to be visiting Germany yesterday, you may have found many parts of the country were quieter than expected. Usually, this level of silence is reserved for public holidays. But even when there's a fire tag in Germany, the trains are usually running. And I think this last point was surely the giveaway that something big was happening all over the country. Because Monday saw what has been called a General Van strike or warning strike. Uh, and it's apparently the largest of its kind in Germany for 30 years. So seems like going on strike is like all the rage at the moment. And... Britain was shut down by rail, the NHS strikes in January. Uh, France has seen massive strikes against the raising of the retirement age over the last month, and now Germany are getting in on the act. The actual strikes yesterday were properly massive, though. I was quite yeah, surprised yeah. at the overall impact. I'd been hearing about them, but whenever mm. the media starts getting alarmist, I have a mm. tendency to stop listening. But trains all across the country weren't running. Ubons were closed. Even the airports were totally yeah. shut down. So if you yeah. essentially needed to travel yesterday, you were properly shit out of luck. So, Nick, I live in like Weissenfels, which is a teeny, mm -hmm. teeny, teeny, teeny little town. And when I heard of the strike, of course, like I, I had my concerns. And I must say, this is a shout out to Abelio. And uh, that ran a free bus service between where I live and where I work. And that is how I made it to work and back, although there was a rail strike. And Abilio 
for those of you who don't know, it's a Dutch transport company that operates buses and trains in a few countries, including Germany. So, I mean, there were no clear signs on the buses and they didn't run on time. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> they were free and like... I mean, I have experience with the Deutsche Bahn, so I'm going to say they were relatively reliable. So thank you, Abelio. Yeah, Abelio, I guess, were not part of the unions that were going no, on strike. They weren't. Because yeah. the thing that caused the chaos ultimately was the two largest unions in the country, or two of the largest, not necessarily the largest, mm. uh, went on strike. Mm, quite. Certainly the second largest trade union went on strike, which is the Verdi uh, union, mm. which is the Verinder Dienstleistungsgewerkschaft. Ouch! Mm -hmm. What a thank God they sh shortened it to Verdi. That has 1.9 million members, approximately across loads of different industries: mm. uh, communications, logistics, financial services, health, post, shipping, but also really importantly, mm. public services and and government. Mm -hmm. And they went on strike alongside the Eisenbahn and Verkehrsgewerkschaft, mm -hmm. or EVG, which is the railway and transport unions. Mm -hmm. And both together effectively shut down a vast majority of travel and industry, logistics, deliveries, kinds of all these different things, all these different areas were, were impacted. Post as well, I think, in some areas. So there was like a really like a well-rounded strike, so to speak. They made travel nearly impossible on all fronts, while also slowing down operations across numerous sectors. And that was part of the plan, namely to raise wages for union members to match the in inflationary prices that we've been impacted by. Yeah, I mean, of course, that's obviously what the aim is, to make it abundantly mm. clear that without these employees, like the country doesn't run. But at least public transport mm -hmm. won't run. What were the strikers actually demanding now? They want roughly 500 euros more per month. So that's one of the, that's that's like the main demand. The AVG, for instance, were looking for a 12% increase per month. But they also want Deutsche Bahn to implement a, a minimum wage of 12 euros an hour, like across several divisions. But I don't think it was all about money. Yeah, there's a few things that I've read while like researching mm -hmm. the topic that from strikers that mentioned that their kind of treatment, especially the treatment mm -hmm. of customer-facing mm -hmm. staff, yeah. like the rail workers, they seem to be facing a lot more hostility since the pandemic began, which is something that I think is, has been heard, talked about in other areas too, where customers are, are less patient and certainly mm -hmm. more aggressive in yeah. their demands. And what I really found interesting was the fact that although the two largest unions mm. were on strike, the largest sector within those mm. strikers was actually these public employees working in kind of mm. local and federal mm. offices. And one of the people that I saw interviewed was a social mm. worker who seemed to be like a really good example of the people who were striking. Uh, and they work mm. really hard. The, the job is really important. And they're paid like, in comparison to what they do, very mm. little. And I think for Verdi in this instance, if our gay were looking for this 12% mm. increase, Verdi were looking for around, I think, ten between 10 wow. and 25% more, which was roughly this 500 euros more per month. I think there was some other demands yeah. as well. But like, yeah, I mean, that, that was the overall what they were looking for. And it's this key... When I was talking to my wife, I said to her as, as we were chatting, I was like, are they talking about in line with mm. interest mm. rates? 
And she was like, why is that important? Mm. And I was like, well, otherwise it's not really a pay increase. It's just if the right, the prices of things are going up and your wages mm. are staying the same, then you're in a shitty position. I think as mm. everyone very much understands, I think at the moment. I mean, it's also not just the treatment and earnings though. So there's a larger question here of a massive lack of government employees that puts a strain on the system altogether. And then this taps into the discussion we had earlier about the experts and the need for skilled workers. So apparently there are like 300,000 vacancies in the public sector that just can't be filled. So either because there aren't enough people available, but also because the salaries are on offer. I mean, they're not attractive enough anymore or to young people, for instance. And then when the conversation is framed like that, I kind of have to like agree with it. I mean, I'm all for the strike. I was looking at this, trying to look at it from a neutral perspective because through January mm. when it was the strikes in Britain, I was very much like, I'm for the strikes and my instinct politically mm. is always to be like, yeah, like strike and, and mm. collective action and mm. that's how you get things done yeah. and it's certainly how you hold um, the wealthy to account or you mm. hold your bosses to account. And so I, I think collective action is always a good strategy. Mm. But there is like a counter argument to all of this which mm. is the kind of worth mentioning, which is that basically those who oppose the pay increase, mm. they essentially come from the CDU. So mm. the people, the, the, the CDU have been pro quite prominent in their criticisms of the unions and their decision to do this and how it's putting stress on the economy and putting stress on Germany. But ultimately, there's another reality that we need to think about where even if their demands are met, mm and they get everything that they wanted, mm. this doesn't impact all the Bundeslander in the same way. Yeah. So the budgets for states like my state, Bayern, or my neighbor state, Baden-Württemberg, mm. as we mentioned, they're the really wealthy places. Yeah. They can afford to pay employees in their state more money. True. But if we look at a state like yours or Saxon, for instance, mm. there just isn't the same amount of money. Yeah. And... Like there is an argument that states should be run better, but like that's pretty telling actually. Like, mm. wouldn't you say that states should be run a bit better? Yes and no. Well, actually, a lot of the issues around state budgets come from the national government. Like, I mean, I, you explained this also in the previous episode. So it's not necessarily mm. the current ample coalition, but like previous administrations also. I mean, had a hand in it. So like laws such as the one on housing benefits. Uh, which reduced the threshold for claims meant that there were far more claims coming in than before, which in turn required new government employees to process them. So those new employees mm. are paid for by the Bundeslander. And another yeah. change from the government was to offer like single parents support if a former partner refuses to pay child support. This change, as good as it is, is paid for by the state, not by the national government. Essentially, that means that the unions gain their pay increase, which is good. But in order to pay for this pay increase, the states might have to start cutting things in other areas. Possibly. But then we can, I mean, we could do this totally wild thing and actually introduce a wealth tax in order to even the playing field for the states a little. Uh, or maybe. No, surely not. 
I couldn't believe it. What, tax people properly? No. <laughs> <laughs> or, or an alternative would be to actually have an inheritance tax. I mean, there's money out there, right? So, like, I mean, we've been told for years about Germany's, like, booming economy, how it's the strongest in the EU and all that jazz, as you say. But, uh, well, I mean, maybe now is the time to actually, like, prove it and, uh, you know, get their hands dirty, like put their money where their mouth is, and so on. I mean, at least with regard to workers, I mean, um, I don't know whether this can be done, and whether that happens maybe is like another story. There's a lot of stories within this this larger strike mm. uh, discussion. Mm. There's lots of just elements. And one of the things that I thought was quite telling is, over the weekend, you obviously had all that footage of streets burning in Paris and mm. chaos on yeah. the streets. yeah. And actually, my favorite kind of target on the podcast is the media, but I do think they really do a disservice to the population. Mm. They were ramping up the chaos element. Oh, it's going to be terrible. Uh, all these newspapers were like, this is what you need to do to travel. Like, watch out. It's the mega strike. The, even the name is mm. patently fucking ridiculous. And they sort of ramped up all this tension and all this fear about what was actually going to happen. Mm. And there wasn't burning blockades on the street or confrontations between the police and strikers. Yeah. There wasn't chaos as had been described. And it made me think like, well, is Germany just too nice maybe? Or is it that Germans love order so much and that's what keeps everybody in line? It's an interesting question. I mean, what is happening in France? I mean, we haven't had a response from the government that is as strong as the French people have had from theirs, right? Do you think that's it? Nah, nah. I think there's more to well, it. Well, there is a rule. There's a general rule that politicians stay out of it when it comes to, which I think is actually a good rule. Mm. They circumvent it in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, they the certainly circumvented it yesterday, where I think there was a couple of incidents. Uh, Friedrich Merz was chief among them, going mm. on television and going. Politicians would never comment on uh, strikes and pay negotiations, but here's my opinion, you know? <laughs> like, so they still managed to jam their opinion yeah, in. Yeah. So there is like an element of them trying not mm. to prejudice the negotiations. I mean, it, I mean, the strikes here have been like remarkably peaceful, but then I can't imagine how any level of violence would have like benefited either side. Mostly, though, I was impressed with how people seem to just like get on with it. Apparently, like taxi firms across Germany were really busy with pre-booked passengers. And most people actually like had gone to work by bike or scooters or e-scooters. That's quite sad that you told us about that replacement bus service because that's kind of hoping that would get uh, some images of you on an e-scooter. But I guess that's not going to happen. <laughs> You know, I've actually, that's not a bad thing. Maybe I should ask for one for my birthday. You know, speaking of sort of alternatives for travel, mm. the traffic wasn't actually that bad. Mm. There was a few things I read that one was based in the north and they said actually traffic was essentially normal, didn't really change that much. Mm. Uh, there was another report I read from Munich that said that the traffic was something like 28%. Mm. I love how it was so accurate. 28% more traffic than usual. Uh, but that's not even that bad, especially when you think there's no public transport. Like 28% worse traffic isn't a real kick in the nuts. No, it's not. I had actually also thought like, you know, maybe people would just dust their cars and go to work in private transport, kind of like mm. uh, yeah. block the streets. But maybe that wasn't the case. 
55% of people in Germany, according to a DPA survey, said they felt the strikes were justified, which is nice. And as for the traffic chaos, you have already pointed out that some 69% of Germans said they wouldn't be impacted by the strike, either because they prepared for it or maybe, uh, you know, they had other reasons. And also, like, some states lifted bans on heavy haulage running on Sundays, meaning there wouldn't be a material shortage in some industries or, like, empty shelves in supermarkets, for instance. So what you're telling us there, Dilly, is that the Germans love organisation and order, and this is all encapsulated in one single story. Ah, it's the podcast Doppelpack. Aw, give me a break. Is that a football reference? That brings us to the end of the show. We are going to get e-scooters and live life on the edge. Edge of the road, that is. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so dangerous. Look at us. We're <laughs> wild. If you're enjoying the podcast, why not give us a rating on iTunes, which only takes a minute and can really help us. You can also rate us on Spotify, so chuck some stars our way there as well. Retweet us, share a link, or post with the hashtag DecadesFromHome, or lowercase, on Twitter or Instagram. You can also support the podcast by going to ko-fi.com slash DecadesFromHome and contributing to help keep this boat afloat. As ever, if you have any questions, feedback, or maybe an article or topic you'd like us to cover, you can tweet Dilly on at DillyAlgama, and you can tweet me at 40%German. You can also get us on decadesfromhome at gmail.com if you have time take a look at 40percentgerman.com weekly articles are up every Saturday all that's left to say is thanks and bis some next time Mal. cheers cheers <laughs> <laughs>